Welcome to Ontario Loud, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Alvin Tejo. I'm Grima Talwar Kapoor. And I'm Sam Andre. The House is risen, everybody. We'll be deprived of question period until September 13th, which for those of you who are counting days between legislative sessions is 101. Normally, MPPs would be hitting the barbecue circuit over the summer, shaking babies and kissing hands. But this summer will be interesting to watch as the pandemic continues and we've got an election less than a year away. This is our first recording in June, which means we've got four episodes left until we take our own time off over the summer. And we'll wrap off the, se- the season with our mailbag, of course. So please send in those questions for our mailbag on Twitter, Instagram, or email us. June also means it's Pride Month. So happy Pride, everyone. Does anyone have any Pride plans? Can we do Pride things yet? Are you looking forward to Pride in this pandemic round two? I'm sure we'll get a few trips into Hanlon's and some outdoor hangs, but no, no official festivities, of course. So in my neighborhood and in uh, Halton, where the Catholic school board said that you couldn't fly the Pride flag in front of the schools, a number of neighbors and community have been putting together Pride lawn signs. And so obviously I got one and I was happy to display it. And it was stolen from my lawn the other day over the weekend. And I was pretty upset about it. And I had this sort of internal debate. Was it, do we think it's just, I don't know, kids, stupid kids being stupid and just taking it? Or do we think this is actually a prejudice thing and they did not like that I was displaying a pride flag? Who knows, I guess. Yeah, it's hard to say. I think somebody would have seen senior sign on your lawn and whether it was just for the sake of doing it or because there was bigotry associated with it, especially given that the Catholic school board in Halton isn't allowing for pride flags to be displayed. It just doubles down on all of the sadness that we're experiencing on a whole host of things for me personally. Yeah. Pride is supposed to be celebratory. And as an ally, I very much enjoy the celebrations around this time and have for many years. So hopefully we can keep a positive spin on it moving forward and Try not to delve too much about this kind of stuff, but June is also uh, Filipino Heritage Month. It's also Portuguese Heritage Month, Italian Heritage Month, and I did not know this until I looked it up, National Indigenous History Month, which seems quite appropriate for the uh, moment that we're in right now as a country. So today we will dive uh, back into that topic of residential schools and the outpouring of grief condemnation, international attention, and the next steps of this difficult topic. We'll also cover the summer rumor mill and play our favorite game of who's going to be in and out of cabinet as speculation has been running rampant over of a summer shuffle ahead of a spring election. But first, we're going to cover education here in Ontario with the announcement last week that schools would remain closed for our 2 million K-12 students. Disappointing many parents, including myself, frustrating teachers and unions across the board because of the lack of clarity and generally surprising absolutely no one after the premier demanded consensus. Sam, I was wondering if you would uh, walk us through this one. Sure. Before I do, though, I do want to say that Doug Ford was getting dunked on for posting a statement about Seniors Month. June is also Seniors Month. Who knew? Maybe we need to spread out our months a bit. But but it wasn't had not posted about Indigenous peoples uh, or pride. Just wanted to point that out. But to answer your actual question... There was a lot that happened with back to schools last week. One of the reasons that teachers, parents, everybody were so frustrated with the announcement on on Wednesday that the schools would remain closed until September is he also in the middle of that dropped that 
every grade should be allowed to have an outdoor in-person graduation uh, ceremony to celebrate the accomplishments of the school year, which surprised everybody because I would obviously break the government's rules around outdoor gathering limits. But then he clarified that this idea came from Arthur. And Arthur was a young boy, a neighbor of Doug as Ford's, who wrote him a letter uh, in French that his mother apparently translated on the back and dropped off this letter at Ford's house. And the premier read the letter and apparently hopped in his pickup, drove over to Arthur's house, met in his backyard and had a uh, heart to heart about schools. And it was Arthur's idea that schools shouldn't reopen, but it would be nice to have a graduation uh, ceremony so that he could see all of his friends. Doug then announced this as government policy and said that they would be changing the regulation soon. Basically, the school boards took no time at all to shoot down that idea. Even Dr. Williams and, and the major public health units were all shooting down the idea as unlikely to proceed on this timeline and People were also pointing out that it might be hard to pull this off with just a couple of weeks, which I fed right in basically to Ford's plan, which this then became the thing. And he then expressed his disappointment with school board's lack of willingness to put kids first. So what do we think about all this and about Arthur? <laughs> the memes this weekend from Arthur, our friendly aardvark cartoon was phenomenal. And I, lo I love the this ties into our rumor mill of cabinet shuffles. But Arthur for education minister apparently is going to be a thing. I don't know. It's just so crazy how he can be so easily influenced by the last person he spoke to and by, you know, one particular story around in their situation and just makes up government policy on the fly. Maybe we should just follow along the, the principles and the guiding light set out in the Arthur theme song. And maybe we do public policy better. It's about getting along, playing along and be kind to each other and believe in yourself. And there's a lot of messages that that the show Arthur and the theme song has. Maybe there's a little bit of a lesson learned in that for us as a province as we develop education policy because so far I think we've failed kids now for two school years and and there's no reason for us to be doing this right BC's been able to keep their school, schools open more or less and I think that in Ontario we forget that the situation that is playing playing out in our schools is not reflective of how other families how other kids are experiencing the education aspect of the pandemic, at least. And and so people should be rightfully angry and upset. They have a knack, though, for creating these little dumb wedges, right? This isn't the first that distract people. And so the outdoor graduation ceremonies is, is the latest. Rather than us talking about the massive learning disruptions, the special needs gaps that are being exacerbated, the fact that time and time again, they did not create safe school conditions. Now we're talking about graduation ceremonies and they got exactly what they wanted, which is what's frustrating. And do we think Arthur is real? Do we think this was a true story? Probably, right? It would be too yeah, far-fetched so. to invent it completely. Too, and I think if it wasn't made up, I think if it was made up, he wouldn't have been in a French school. And so specific. Know. Yeah, fair enough. It was, it was very specific. It was even like, yeah, I met his brother at the door and then we both had our masks on. We walked to the, it was just so random. And just, I guess if you should always be prepared, if you live around Etobicoke with your policy issue and present it to the premier, if you happen to run into him or know where he lives, might make his press conference. Yeah, but I think that's the appeal of the premier and the government, right? That's the, the I don't want to say the populist appeal in like the traditional way that we understand populism, but that is the appeal of the premier that he would just 
picks up the phone, talks to people pre-pandemic, or would just walk into somebody's house. But not to have then substantive policy ideas is where you see a complete breakdown in the government's ability to actually do things, right? Like it's, we've got all these great ideas, but nothing actually gets done. And I I think we'll talk about the cabinet shuffle later and whether they want a more diverse cabinet or not, but or how they're going to go about doing that. But I think that the things that got this government elected aren't going to be in in 2018. They're not going to be able to rest on those personalities only to be able to get reelected next year. Last thing I'll say about Arthur for any parents out there or anybody who doesn't really remember watching this show, but I've watched it with my kids a few times. It is weird on the show that all the characters are animals and all the animals, all the characters have pets who are also animals, some of which are the same species of animal as some of their friends. Like Buster's a dog, yet Pal is also a dog and Pal is Arthur's dog. Anyway. You're too deep, man. You're going too deep. The things you realize when you watch kid shows and you're like, I hate Peppa Pig. Like, this kid is so annoying. Why do people watch this? Caillou, he's the worst. Anyway, we're going to stay on education for another hot minute because the FAO, the Financial Accountability Office, did release news last week that projected spending in the education ministry has a shortfall of $12.3 billion over the next nine years, I should say. Grima, I was wondering if you wanted to walk through these numbers with us. Yeah, sure. The FAO's report from last week, I'd say, is pretty pretty damning, especially for anybody that's been watching what's happening over education over the past year and a half and how the narratives don't actually meet what is planned for education in the coming years. So according to the FAO, the shortfall is basically the ministry's own spending commitments and program funding until the end of the decade, which the FAO calculates at an average growth rate of 2%. So the current budget and estimates only have that pegged at 1.2%, resulting in the $12 billion shortfall that we're expected to see over nine years. And if we dive into these numbers quickly, over 85%, so 87% of the ministry's funding is going to school boards, of which 82% is compensation. Compensation is driven by enrollment levels and collective agreements. The FAO also points out gaps in funding for childcare with the province downloading costs to municipalities, but committing to new spaces that they'd fund but haven't allocated the appropriate dollars for. The FAO points out that this likely means that unallocated spaces within the government's commitment won't be completed and that the government won't be able to meet their promise. So I'd say pretty stark stuff and things for us to be thinking about now so that we ensure that we don't have this massive shortfall in in the coming nine years. What are your thoughts about this? I know one of the immediate problems with what you were just saying around the childcare spaces is that they need to spend the money now to build the spaces out three, five years from now. So the fact that there isn't enough money today means that there's no chance that they're going to hit their their targets of increasing the number of spaces for childcare. So I don't know, maybe they're just relying on the feds with their childcare plan to fill this gap and they just never intended to fulfill this promise. I think that's a really good point though, Alvin, because we know that developing those bilateral agreements isn't easy and it's not going to, it's going to take a couple of years for those to come online. Like it's not going to be next week. It's not going to be next month. And so your point that this funding needs to be allocated now for those new spaces that they want to build, I think that's really important because for a lot of people, it's probably thinking, oh yeah, the feds will come pick it up. 
but we know that the development of these agreements take time. And the report points out that almost all of the spaces that this government has quote unquote added or built to date were liberal approvals that are now just coming online. And this government does not care about licensed child care. They couldn't even pretend to care about licensed child care. They actively want to undermine it. And that's why they talk about parental choice and the tax credit and whatnot. So that's nice to see the FAO kind of laying out the truth on that. On the education stuff funding more broadly, I do think this is true, not just of education, but, and we've talked about this in the past, but in every line in the budget, they're underfunding it into the future to make the deficit in the out years look smaller than it really will be. And again, I think a nice legacy of having an FAO in Ontario now is the regularity with which you get these up-to-date figures that cast doubt on the budget plan because governments of all stripes do that a bit, play with numbers and out ears because the media can't do that due diligence themselves. Sam, how do you think this affects their bargaining? Do you think they use this as like a, we've got a plan and this sort of pushes the bargaining units to, you know, try to fit the plan or whatever it is to that might result in more job action down the road. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. The government doesn't want to show that they can fund, say, a 2% inflationary wage increase. No problem at all, because it's baked into the budget. They want to be at the table and there to be this tension and this fight. And so that's definitely part of the strategy. And again, not something exclusive to conservatives. Liberals did that too at times. And yeah, whether it actually results in job action, it's you know too, too early to say. In, the, in fact, the contracts expire at the end of August 2022, so will be after the next election. So I can't imagine the negotiations are going to progress very far. My guess is this government ignores them until until after the next election, and then it will be a scramble for whoever's in power to to wrap them up. It's important to also know that this $12 billion figure is if we don't keep up with inflationary increases. And so this does not take into account that we actually need investments in excess of just keeping up with what we've got right now to make the education system better for our kids. So if we're looking at a $12 billion shortfall, just because we're not keeping up with the cost of things increasing uh, year over year, and not talking about enhanced investments so that you do create greater better outcomes for students, greater equity outcomes. Touching on Leche, because he is probably one of the government's better communicators. And I don't think he's been doing that great of a job. He he talks a lot about how they've provided all this support for students, this, that, and the other thing. But I'm seeing it on the other end, and I'm seeing it's not there. And there's a significant challenge. So the question is, does someone like Stephen Leche get shuffled in what is now everyone determining that there is going to be a significant cabinet shuffle or should be a significant cabinet shuffle this summer ahead of the election next year. So a more strategic, more political election ready type of cabinet shuffle where anonymous sources have been telling news outlets that this cabinet isn't diverse enough or representative enough of the regions and the ridings that the PCs need to get in order to be competitive to win the next election. Logically speaking, this looks like we're looking at more GTA and suburban MPPs getting cabinet posts, potentially more women, more people of color, more representation generally, however token. But before we dive into who goes where and what happens, let's just remind listeners that Doug Ford's first ever government for the people, that's a direct quote from his from his launch when he announced his cabinet, included only seven women and only one person of color. 
And that would be Raymond Cho from Scarborough in the junior portfolio of Minister Responsible for Seniors. This hasn't really changed. His cabinet, his current cabinet has expanded to include a number of associate ministers, junior ministers, of which he added two more women and one more person of color, doubling the number of people of color if you include regular cabinet and the expanded cabinet with Pramit Scaria from, uh, from Brampton. Otherwise, his cabinet has basically been rearranging of seats versus wholesale change and replacement, obviously notwithstanding the two he's kicked out due to a harassment scandal or spending time in St. Bart's. So with that as our lay of the land, Sam, I think we'll start with you and what do you think? Who's staying? Who's going? What needs to change? And is this going to do anything? I think all signals are that this is going to be a major shuffle, that they want to project some new faces, some fresh thinking, and make people forget about the chaos of the last 15, 16 months. And all indications, maybe just to start with Lecce, is that Lecce is out, and he's basically been sidelined on the communications lately, as you mentioned. So my guess is they still will want to attack teachers and continue to have education be a wedge for them. They clearly think in this latest, what the, you know, outdoor graduation ceremonies is the latest that they, that this is a winning proposition for them. I don't think they'll put a dove there. If I was just scanning the list, I, I wonder if like a Paul Colanger or somebody goes to education that they can continue to try to create wedges there. But I do think Lecce will move. I was also scanning the list. I do wonder if Lecce goes to an economic development or something. I don't think they can demote him hugely. So my guess is they'll find some landing spot, but maybe that's not as high profile and frequently in the public as education. So that's why I hypothesized maybe economic development, which then you'd have to move Fideli. It does seem like a bunch of the rural men in cabinet might either get demoted or pushed out based on how they reacted to, to lockdowns. That's the rumor. And I guessed that maybe Yakabuski gets punted and then I slotted Steve Clark over to natural resources and maybe move Fideli to, to municipal affairs potentially was a thought that I had. I do think they'll bring Rod Phillips back because he's their smartest cabinet minister uh, and Doug needs some more smart people. So that's why I wondered if they put him again at, at government house leader because he's not actually a minister, not as much profile, but he is at the cabinet table to be counseled to Ford, which is why I then moved to Calandrum. So those are my bouncing balls. I do think a bunch of junior folks, to your point, who are people of color, Stan Cho, Parm Gill, will get promoted. But I, I think it will probably be mostly in like associate positions than in really high profile things. And I do think Christine Elliott is a big wild card, but I, my gut says she stays where she is. That's my roundup. What do we think? God, if Parmgill becomes a minister of the crown, I might take to the streets. It's criminal. It's, there's accusations. There's all these things. But like, how can we let people get away with that kind of stuff? Anyway, I did want to touch on how a major theme of this cabinet and in terms of assigning uh, positions to certain people was that a lot of the women in cabinet were getting the, like the bad news spares types of jobs and haven't had any sort of real wins and victories and have taken a lot of the heat of this government. I don't know if that's an intentionally sexist thing or not, but I think on the chopping block are certainly people like Marilee Fulton from Long-Term Care, Lisa McLeod, Heritage Sport, Tourism, Culture. There's a whole bunch of things that her portfolio could get split, and I think that's probably pretty likely. Lisa Thompson, which is Government and Consumer Services, which could also be split because they used to be two ministers, uh, ministries. Laurie Scott, uh, who's uh, from a pretty rural riding. If Marilee Fullerton is still in cabinet after the shuffle, like 
there's no justice in this world. <laughs> and I, I think she probably was the one that leaked the story that she was fighting against the premier and, you know, trying to save her own. Yeah, you're probably right. Her own job here. But Grima, I'm wondering if you had any thoughts to the placement of this, of these positions with women in difficult situations. In the reporting that's saying that there will likely be a cabinet shuffle coming forward, there's a quote by one of the people that's speaking saying that the party is in, quote, the seat winning business. And for me, that was very striking. Because if you're running, perhaps this is idealistic of me, but I would imagine that if you are working for a political party and you are working to get elected, that the main reason for you wanting to do that work is for public service and not for the sheer calculus of where are you going to win seats or not. I recognize that you need to win seats to be able to hold government, to do the types of things that you want to do, but to lead that off as the thing that that drives you, uh, the seat winning business, as opposed to public service, for me, is telling about priorities of who gets placed where and what public policy priorities are are shaped by the government. And so I'd say I don't know that they purposefully are putting women in in health or in long-term care or in heritage and sport, for example. But I think that their calculus is driven by who do they think are, are strong for really difficult portfolios and in challenging writings. But I'd also say that this idea that you've got this awakening now three years into your government, that you need a more diverse cabinet for me is really upsetting to say nonetheless, like the diversity of Ontario did not just emerge in the past three years. The things that the government had to do to get elected and to ride that populist wave to get elected in 2018 is not going there. They know that it's not going to sustain them for a re-election moving forward. And I really hope that a facade of a of a cabinet that is diverse for the sake of diversity without actually recognizing the importance of why you would need a diverse cabinet for diversity to develop uh, good public policy. For me, as a woman, as a person of color, it's really upsetting. Yeah, and I think the, it's, it's all about the framing, right, Grima? Like when liberal governments and liberal governments have done this in Ontario and federally have gender equal cabinets and have more representation uh, in, in cultural backgrounds, but they always pitched it and talked about it as important to be representative of society as a whole, of to bring in different perspectives, whereas all of this seems to be a political calculus. And maybe the, I'm not saying that the political calculus wasn't there when other governments did it, but they didn't lead with that. And that wasn't the only reason that they did it. But because I feel like this is 100% what they're going to do, it's definitely not going to be about merit. It's not going to be about their skill and their ability. And maybe that's why they bring somebody back who they've kicked out before, because they do need some adults at the table, so to speak. But to the point on gender diversity, I don't think they lean into having as many women, because they don't feel like they need to. They they know the demographics, they know who tends to vote for them and who doesn't. I think where they will lean into is the cultural diversity. They know that they can be successful with South Asians, they can be successful with East Asians, um, but they don't have enough of that representation. They've got two MPPs of Chinese heritage in Markham and in Richmond Hill. And so between Billy Pang and Daisy Y, I think one of them gets appointed. They have a, a huge Tamil community in, in Ontario that isn't represented. They've got two MPPs who represent that community. I definitely think out out in Peel or Halton, you could get a woman or you could get somebody like Nina Tangri, who is both South Asian and representing a Peel riding. 
So there's definitely some opportunities here for those folks. But again, I agree with you. It seems to be all for the wrong reason. And I think generally speaking, we're looking at a cabinet that just expands and divides up some existing roles and tries to throw up at least a couple more people. Like literally, we're talking about two people of color in this entire cabinet, which is almost 30 people having been representative of everyone who has a minority opinion in in Ontario for the last three years, and them trying to make up for it a year before an election. If anybody that's making decisions around who's in cabinet and not is listening, the idea that you think that that different populations, be they South Asian populations, the Chinese population, Tamil population, is, is going to vote for you if you put up a person of that background up for election, but not actually create convincing sort of argument for why they should be elected as a representative, that they are effective, that they have ideas that will uh, lead to better public services and greater stability and security and well-being for their riding and constituents. I just, I think that the tokenizing of women and people of color in the conversation around who's in cabinet or not is just, it's it's like circa 1980 about how we think about diversity. And I'm worried that that some of the gains that we've made around not tokenizing people of color, not tokenizing women, not tokenizing people with disabilities is going to be undone because the, the, the leadership is set by government. And if government is saying that this is okay, what does that mean for, for businesses? What does that mean for other sectors? There's a lot of discussion about diversity on boards. And is it just about tokenizing people and tokenizing communities? Or is it about the importance of having diverse perspectives in in any work that you do. Sam, your last thoughts on this? I, I think lots of good points. Just one person I didn't, I forgot to mention that I, I just wanted to circle back on was Todd Smith. I think there's no way they keep him where he is, just given how fractured the relationship with the autism community has become. And they'll just continue to move that hot potato around because they can't figure out how to fix it. But I also just think having witnessed up close some cabinet shuffles in government and now witnessing some from the outside. I don't know that it works. I don't know that it works in the seat saving way anymore. Maybe it mattered more in an, a different era, but I just think like the idea that appointing somebody to cabinet is going to make people in their riding vote for them more. I just don't really know that's a real phenomenon. I would be interested if there's like any evidence about that. I, I do think it matters when you're talking about fundraising and organizing, and that helps in the seat saving. Like if you have, right yeah, now you have enough. no representation, and there is a significant portion of Chinese Canadians who are conservative leaning, and they don't have a champion for them fair with enough. this government, I fair think enough. that helps them in that sense. Maybe it, it does or doesn't help him win that specific riding, but I think it helps the movement of the conservative party uh, to try and continue to engage and maintain the, that relationship. And I would say the same thing applies for South Asians, Tamils, and everyone else that they're trying to... Okay, on to residential schools, which has been all over the news. It, it's changing daily. There's been lots of talk, calls for action, uh, a number of protests and demonstrations over what to do 
uh, next about Canada's history and its current situation around residential schools. The Prime Minister did speak at length with Martin Ridgecon about his feelings on the matter late last week. He clarified that the government would provide funds to all Indigenous communities to investigate and possibly unearth other potential mass burial sites. And he has repeated his call for the Catholic Church here in Canada and at the Vatican to apologize and to also release records um, available during that time. Just as a reminder, the Catholic Church in Canada was responsible for administrating, running about 70% of the schools, residential schools in Canada. The other ones were also religious denominations, the United Church, other churches, Presbyterians. They have come out and apologized over the last several decades, and it seems to be an outlier that the Catholic Church has not. But I don't want to just harp on the Catholic Church on this one, because it does feel like a moment where the country as a whole is collectively paying attention to this issue and is talking about what needs to happen next and how we move forward. So I don't know, I think let's start with around the, you know, this moment in time and, and how much of an opportunity we have do we think to actually create change and do the things that we need to do to to follow through on truth and reconciliation? I echo your thoughts that there is a collective consciousness that I think is emerging around Canadians reckoning with our past. What I find really striking about this moment is that a lot of people are willing to say that it's not enough, right? So it's that there's this awakening and people are really angry and upset. You've got leadership coming forward and saying we recognize that there's a, that there's a problem and we'll do better and people aren't accepting that as an answer anymore that people want to see what's actually going to happen and i think a little bit of that is also for us as people living our lives here asking ourselves what are we willing to do we all work in the policy world and from our perspective what does decolonizing policy work actually look like we need to think about how we decolonize the process and think about who has the right to govern, who do they govern, and how do we engage with Indigenous communities so that we're not taking over their, taking over and perpetuating the harms that have been done in the past. So Sam mentioned last week, there are still dozens, 80-something recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that have not been implemented. Last week, the government did announce the findings of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Independent Commission as well. So there's a number of recommendations coming out of that. So there certainly, I think, is now a, a sense of urgency around implementing those pieces. But there's also a need right now to reconcile and discover everything that has happened because people finally have a tangible example in their minds. There's obviously been examples before, but an example of this tragedy and this terrible time in our history with the uncovering and unearthing of these remains. So how do we even get through this phase? Is there, are we talking about for the next several months and years, unearthing and digging up and doing all these for every residential school site to make sure we know the full story. Are we, we're talking about international relations as well. We're talking about the Catholic Church, which is another state with the Vatican. And, you know, the Pope came out with more comments and it was insufficient, according to many, my, me included. And when do we start? What needs to happen next on that front? I have so many thoughts in wrapped up in all those questions. But I think for those who haven't watched Murray Sinclair's sort of 10-minute statement that he put out last week, it's really powerful. And 
there were things in there that I, I hadn't heard before. And so I think one of the things he said that I thought would, that's really struck with me is basically, I think he was, I don't want to speak for him, but I think he was speaking to indigenous people saying it's important that non-indigenous Canadians see this horror, that, that there's power in this and that maybe more people are engaging now than they did when we first released the TRC. And I think maybe that's just the nature of how traumatic it was. But I think the callousness of the Catholic Church's response, especially the Pope's statement expressing closeness, like what is what does that mean? And then I actually watched in full the interview with the Archbishop, which was borderline gaslighting, like it was outrageous. I think it's up to the communities. And and I I actually think Trudeau did a decent job of last week saying the money is there. We maybe had too many rules around that money. And so we're going to loosen that up. And I'm sure some communities will want it leave it undisturbed and others will feel differently. And I think that's not for us to weigh in on, I think. And just Maybe the last word I'll say on this is speaking about Ontario politics in particular, a fresh reminder that one of the first things this government did was cancel the Indigenous curriculum writing team and have still not reconvened it three years later, and that the Liberals put in place a process of updating the curriculum, got some of the way there. There was content added to grade eight and grade 10 history, but more was to be done in, in earlier grades and later grades. And it's unconscionable that is still not a priority even after last week that they couldn't even be bothered to to do a token response around that. And I hate this government. Thanks. Well, and combine that, he hasn't recognized Indigenous Heritage Month. And there's a lot of criticism that we can uh, can volley this government's way. And I think it's important that we package that together and really present to people, this is, the federal government can do this. The provincial government has a responsibility to do the following. More locally, we have institutions looking at renaming. We have individual schools looking at renaming. It's become more than just land recognition, which I think became the sort of token activity to do in acknowledging that something was happening without having to really dive in. Whereas now I think the hard work really begins for the broader Canadian society around how do we how do we sort through this and not just just acknowledge that it happened. Let's wrap up with uh, with rapid fire as, as we like to do at the end of our episodes. And we're going to touch on a number of the things we've already talked about. Uh, and so I'll start with Grima because Queen's Park has seen a statue of Johnny McDonald boarded up due to protests and vandalism, and opposition leader Andrea Horvath removed the portrait of Egerton Ryerson from outside her office. We also saw this weekend the forced removal of the Ryerson statue off of campus, but both you know, institutionally and politically speaking for Queen's Park and the legislature, what do you think should be done here, at least for the time being? Yeah, I'm in favor of moving and removing those those reminders of people that did harm and institutions that did harm to Indigenous peoples on this land. The fact that there's a debate about whether we're canceling our history and erasing our history is such, I just, I don't understand how people think that the idea that a statue or a bust of someone is somehow reminding us of what? Our glorious history? Because it's not glorious. It's our shame. It's our national shame. And so I just, I, for the life of me, do not understand why people want to see symbols that remind them of the, of 
the cruelty with which we've treated communities, human beings, children, and continue to do. It might not be as explicit as it's been in the past, but we, we do so quietly. I also think this is just my own opinion, though my opinion on this really is largely irrelevant, but like differentiating statues from names to me is also, they fundamentally are different to me. And like statues are meant to be celebratory. They're commemorating the person. And the idea that removing them somehow takes away that history, it does not. It takes away the celebration part. Whereas to me, the name, I think you can make the naming of institutions or schools or whatnot, you can make the argument that the name has evolved into something beyond the person it was named after. And and so you have to take that more seriously than a statue, if I'm making any sense. But not to say that doesn't mean that we shouldn't rename Ryerson University. I just mean, to me, those are um, fundamentally different conversations. And to me, the statue is a no-brainer. So, Sam, you mentioned Todd Smith. He's the MPP for the Bay of Quinte. He is also the minister responsible for the province's autism strategy. And last week, there was a digital billboard ad that ran in his writing that was critical of him. It says he's all talk and no action. It was paid for by the Ontario Autism Coalition and taken down after a few days because the billboard company said they don't allow political ads. However, the twist of this story is that Todd Smith's Former chief of staff's father owns the billboard. So the question, is this really a nothing burger and the billboard company didn't realize it was a political ad? Or did somebody make a call and make and took this down? This feels like a peak Prince Edward County like <laughs> experience. <laughs> Obviously, probably the fact that the billboard company is conservatively aligned had something to do with the fact that they enforce their political advertising policy i'm sure and i think it's really funny yeah i I figure it's it's a digital ad somebody submitted it automatically digitally and no one reviewed it and they got the money for it and then somebody called and called their father who called this person who said yeah you got to take that down i i yeah i don't see them i don't see that being an accident Anyway, we also just heard a breaking news, although you'll hear this a day later but that the province is expecting to open to its first step for Friday. And so that we can have a more open weekend. Is this going to work out well? Is this good? I feel good about it. Cases are coming down. The RT is still below one. It's all outdoors, which like, let's be honest, people are really in many ways already doing all of these activities unsanctionedly. The patios are obviously a bit different, but this feels good to me. I also think I saw somebody's analysis on Twitter. So like take it with one grain of salt is we're 23 days behind the U.S. in terms of on our vaccination pace. And 23 days ago, most of the United States was dramatically more open than we are. Yet the United States caseload, hospitalization, ICU, et cetera, continues to fall significantly. So I think vaccines work and we should obviously do this with great care, but this feels pretty low risk to me. What I would like to see associated with that is what the vac- what the vaccination um, plan looks like, especially given the extent to which the Delta variant is increasing in Ontario and going back to an equity-based strategy on vaccinations might be necessary because, again, it's not directly connected to opening up and opening up at least the outdoors a little bit more, but it does mean that people that work 
um, in spaces where you can't have that physical distancing, that you protect those workers, but not only in in areas like Peel and Toronto, but also cases per 100,000 are the highest in the Porcupine Health Unit in the north. And I think that that as this is a provincial opening up strategy, we need to think about that. Can I just say quickly, the fact that they renamed the variants, the alpha, you know, beta, gamma, delta, brilliant. And like how rapidly everyone just acclimatized to it. That was last week. And now it's like in the discourse, in the media. It shows how closely everyone's paying attention to all this. But I thought that was awesome. Random, yeah, it's sorry, good that they're nerd, not calling it the Brazil virus, yeah, the yeah, China exactly. virus, the Italian variant. Anyway, that's it for Rapid Fire. Wasn't so rapid. We're getting better. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Chris will be back next week. And that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Ontario Loud. We are a podcast about politics and public policy focused on Ontario. Ontario Loud is hosted by Grumatawar Kapoor, Alvin Tejo, and Sam Andrew. I'm Chris Martin. We are supported by amazing volunteers uh, and Harmon Mundy, who helps us do research and communications. He also sends us lots of funny memes in the group chat. Raheem Khan helps us do communications and social media, and we are so grateful for their support. If you like what you heard, go to iTunes and give us a review or head to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud and support the pod for less than the price of a cup of coffee each month. It's easy. It helps us support our costs like hosting and technology and helps us keep doing this thing for the long term. If you have any thoughts on what you heard, get at us on Twitter at Ontario Loud, on Instagram at Ontario Loud Podcast, or OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Last but certainly not least, Ontario Lab is recorded on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, Anishinaabeg, Chippewa, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat people, and many nations. Toronto is governed by Treaty 13, and it is important to acknowledge that too often in our settler colonial society, we make conscious and unconscious attempts to erase uh, this history, and we must do everything we can to fight that. It's about more than a land acknowledgement, but uh, we want to end the pod with one. And we stand in solidarity with the First Nations uh, in our community and acknowledge that we have so much more to do and pledge to do what we can on this podcast to uh, further their cause. That's it for us, and we will see you next week.